Hello and welcome to the FIEC podcast where you'll hear teaching and resources for church leaders to help independent churches work together to reach Britain for Christ. One of the challenges churches will be facing coming out of lockdown is the issue of conversion therapy and the proposals of the government to ban it, which has the danger of criminalising ordinary gospel ministry in our churches. In God's providence, this webinar has come at a time when the issue has come to the fore with the resignation of Jane Ozan and others from the government's LGBTQ advisory group and the Prime Minister's desire to advance a ban on conversion therapy. FIC National Director John Stevens is joined in this Leadership in Lockdown webinar by Sharon James and Simon Calvert from the Christian Institute to address this challenge and think about how church leaders should respond. Let's start by turning to God's word. We've been looking through the um, Psalms of Ascent. We're in Psalm 128. So let me read Psalm 128. Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in obedience to him. You will eat the fruit of your labor. Blessing and prosperity will be yours. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Yes, this will be the blessing for the man who fears the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you live to see your children's children. Peace be on Israel. Well, we've seen over the weeks, haven't we, that the um, Psalms of Ascent speak of the journey of God's people from exile into his presence. And they provide a pattern for the Christian life and our Christian experience. Those who are exiles in this world, but are headed to be in the presence of God in the new creation. And the great hope in the middle of these Psalms of Ascent, the Psalms that we've been looking at in the last couple of weeks, is that God promises he is going to restore his blessing to his uh, uh, people. We saw in Psalm 126, it was a prayer for the restoration of the fortunes of God's people. We saw from Psalm 127 that it's the Lord who must build uh, the house, um, uh, restore Jerusalem, uh, restore um, the people. And then here in Psalm 128, we see the promise of restored blessing. The God who is uh, building his house, uh, building the house, uh, will bless uh, his uh, people. Um, uh, This is pictured in terms of prosperity, fruitfulness, uh, and uh, children. And what's being described here is a renewal of the covenant blessings that were promised, the covenant blessings that were promised in Deuteronomy and in um, Leviticus. So God is going to restore his blessing to his uh, people. Um, And I think for those of us who are as Christians living um, after the coming of the new covenant, this psalm is a tremendous encouragement to us because these blessings are being fulfilled uh, in Christ. And it's a reminder to us that the gospel that we have is truly a prosperity gospel. So just four brief thoughts uh, on this uh, psalm that uh, speaks of this great hope. Um, The promise is that God will bless those who fear and uh, uh, obey him. Verse one, blessed are all who uh, fear uh, uh, the Lord, blessed who walk in obedience to him. Verse um, six, um, it's the man who fears the Lord who will um, be blessed. The way to receive covenant blessing is through covenant um, uh, 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 obedience. Um, God promises then that um, he will bless his people with fruitful prosperity um, and peace. Um, uh, This is the uh, blessing that uh, they're going to receive, pictured here in the psalm as um, uh, children, long life, uh, peace and security uh, in uh, Jerusalem. As I said, these are the promises of uh, the uh, covenant that are going to be fulfilled uh, for God's people as he restores them uh, from exile.
But we need to recognize these were never fulfilled in this way in the history of uh, Israel. Uh, and so as the New Testament comes, we see that ultimately these very promises are the ones that are fulfilled in Jesus. God is blessing us because Jesus is the one who perfectly feared God and obeyed the covenant. Now, nobody has uh, fully obeyed God. Nobody has fully feared God except for the Lord Jesus himself. He's the one who lived a life of perfect obedience and fear of God. And the result is he's the one who's entitled to the covenant blessings. And he brings about covenant blessing for his people. We share in those blessings, uh, not because we deserve them ourselves, but because we're included with him in faith. And the blessings that he gains by his obedience, he shares and he gives by grace uh, to uh, uh, us. So these blessings um, are, are being fulfilled uh, in uh, Jesus. The uh, picture here of children, I think, speaks primarily to us as its fulfillment of um, the people of uh, God who are being gathered by the Lord Jesus, um, those who are born again, those who are brought into uh, his uh, family. And uh, we can rejoice that these promises are being fulfilled as the gospel goes out and as people believe and trust in Jesus. And this psalm reminds us that we live between the now and the not yet. At the moment, these uh, blessings are enjoyed primarily spiritually for us uh, in Christ as we trust in him. But we do look ahead to the full physical enjoyment of those blessings uh, when the uh, kind of new creation uh, comes, when the kingdom is consummated, when all of God's people are gathered together, when we enjoy eternal life, when we have total lasting peace um, and security. So here is great um, encouragement from this psalm. God is going to restore his blessings to his people. He is doing that in the Lord Jesus. We can look forward to hope that that will be fully um, accomplished. Um, our gospel message is a gospel message of um, restored prosperity because of what Jesus has done for us. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you and praise you so much for the encouragement of knowing that you are keeping your promises. Thank you that because of the perfect obedience of the Lord Jesus, Thank you because of his death for um, our sins that has taken away the judgment we deserve, that you are restoring your, your blessings to your people. Thank you and praise you particularly for the growth of the gospel, that more and more people are being born again by the work of the Spirit uh, and are becoming the children, the descendants of the Lord Jesus. Thank you that we can look forward to when these promises will be fully fulfilled and enjoyed in the new creation. Please might this be an encouragement uh, to us. Thank you for the hope of great prosperity that we have in the gospel. Please would that um, encourage us. Please would we hold out to others this message of hope that they so desperately need to hear. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you very much. I'm going to hand over then to um, Sharon and to Simon. Thank you for being with us. Um, uh, over to you. Well, it's really good to join you all this lunchtime. And we're so thankful to John for his invitation. And we're really grateful to God for all of you and for all of the different ministries that you represent. In our daily prayers at the Christian Institute, we often pray for church leaders and for gospel ministries up and down the country. And over the past 30 years, we've sought to help Christians and others to respond to threats to freedom, um, some of which have had very direct bearing on freedom to preach the gospel. Now, as John has said, we've been hearing so much in the media about bans for this so-called conversion therapy. And the Christian Institute, among other things, aims to help Christians be informed about what's going on in the public square. So that's why Simon and I are with you today, just to answer some of the most frequently asked questions about this ban on so-called conversion therapy. So what is it? 
a campaign group called Ban Conversion Therapy was started in July 2020. And they define conversion therapy as, quote, a practice or intervention which attempts to erase, repress, cure, or change someone's sexual orientation or lack of, or, and or gender identity. That's not enormously clear. So you have to go to the ban campaign, the, the ban conversion therapy campaign website to give, find the three examples they give of so-called conversion therapy. The first example is from George and he testifies that in his case, it conversion therapy involved the laying on of hands and intensive prayer, the casting out of demons and being forced to describe my homosexual experiences and to repent of it. Two adults shouting and pushing down on my head, forcing me to my knees. There were top up events where I would be told that I had spirits that had returned, which needed casting out. The second example is from Carolyn. Now, during the 1960s, when she was a teenager suffering gender dysphoria, a local vicar referred her to a psychiatrist who arranged aversion therapy at Blackburn Hospital, which involved electric shock treatment. And then the third case they give is from Ibrahim. As a young medical student, he came out as gay to his conservative religious family and his dad arranged for an appointment with a Muslim psychiatrist working on Harley Street here in London. And Ibrahim says, he took me to a basement consultation room. He started to ask me incredibly invasive questions. It was all about sexual practice, pornography, intimacy, the girlfriend I'd had before going to university. I came out of the appointment feeling violated and afraid. Now there we have three accounts of people who tragically have been bruised and hurt and we wouldn't defend any of those cases, what went on in any of those cases, which ranged from extreme unwisdom to physical abuse. And campaigners pushing for a ban claim that many extreme abuses, even so-called corrective rape, have been inflicted. But beyond anecdotes and accusations, is there any hard evidence for the need to legislate a ban on conversion therapy? Well, to date, there have just been two various dubious pieces of research. In 2017, the government's national LGBT survey questioned people attending pride events. Now it admits the sample was self-selected and there is no guarantee that it was representative. 2% of the respondents claimed to have undergone conversion therapy, but importantly, the report admits they didn't actually convert, they didn't actually define what conversion therapy is. They didn't ask where the conversion therapy so-called took place, whether here or abroad. And importantly, they didn't ask when it happened. So it could have happened 50 years ago. The second piece of research comes from Jane Azan's Foundation Faith and Sexuality. They published the results of the survey in 2018. But again, they didn't define conversion therapy. And again, the participants were self-selecting. In that survey, 458 people claimed to have had experience of somebody trying to change their sexual orientation. And of those, 282 said that it involved 
private prayer or prayer with close friends. So what's the government doing? Well, last July, Boris Johnson announced that he was committed to introducing legislation to outlaw conversion therapy. When such a law wasn't proposed speedily, campaigners organized a petition to ask for a ban and it reached the number of signatures needed to trigger a Westminster Hall debate. A debate took place in Westminster Hall on Monday the 8th of March 2021. Now Westminster Hall debate of course is an opportunity for MPs to raise issues of concern. A government minister has to respond but there's no vote and no legislation. Now the Christian MPs who had prepared to speak about the risks to ordinary church life were not selected in the ballot. So all of the 20 MPs who spoke on that Monday evening supported a ban without qualification. At the end of the debate, the junior minister, Kemi Badenoch, insisted that the government in principle wanted to outlaw conversion therapy. Shortly afterwards, as you've heard, Jane Azan quit her place on the government's LGBT advisory panel as a protest that things were not moving quickly enough or far enough. And she is closely allied with ITN's Paul Brand, himself a campaigner on this, who claimed the problem is that the government is listening too much to the concerns of evangelicals. So right now we're watching this space. We know that those who are pushing hard for a ban are not going to give up. At the weekend, Boris Johnson again publicly reiterated his determination to stamp out conversion therapy. So I'm gonna hand over to my colleague Simon now to answer the question of how we should respond. All right, well, how should we respond to this campaign is the question. Well, of course, people should be protected from quack therapists and charlatan preachers. Where violence and abuse takes place, well, that's already covered by legislation and it should be tackled by the authorities. In addition, there's a, a memorandum of understanding involving the NHS and all the mainstream counselling organisations, including, I may say, the Association of Christian Counsellors, that strictly forbids any therapy which suggests at all that homosexual activity is wrong. The extreme stories of conversion therapy that you hear almost always involve activities that are already illegal in the UK, or they're prevented by that memorandum of understanding, or they're just simply not happening anymore because of cultural changes. If conversion therapy were carefully defined to mean wrongful or coerced medical treatment, and if there was evidence of it happening today in the UK, we would have no problem with a new law on that. As Christians, of course, we condemn abuse of every kind. But the problem, as we'll see in a moment, is the way that a ban on conversion therapy is being presented would actually threaten our freedom to preach repentance. Ordinary church life would be beset by the risk of prosecution. As gospel churches, we call all people everywhere to repent, regardless of whether they identify as gay. If we are to proclaim that need to repent, we have to be free to proclaim God's perfect moral standards, those standards which mesh with the conscience that he's given us as people made in his image. The biblical word for repentance and belief is conversion. We believe in conversion, not conversion therapy. We don't wake up in the morning and think, I'm going to turn a gay person straight today. That's just not how we see the world. 
we think in terms of being faithful to teach the whole counsel of God. We think in terms of introducing sinners to the Savior and helping them to follow his teaching. And it's the Holy Spirit's work then to transform and sanctify. And each of us faces our own particular struggles in the area of sanctification. Christ told the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. And he says the same to us, giving us new natures and the power of the Holy Spirit to obey him. None of us, of course, becomes temptation free. We don't believe in perfectionism and we don't promise people that if they join our church, that Jesus will solve all their problems. And churches that do at least implicitly make that promise, they misrepresent God. They raise false expectations and they damage people and not just people who are gay. We come from different backgrounds, we're tempted in different ways, but we all stand together at the foot of the cross and we're all forgiven sinners. I love 1 Corinthians 6. Let me read it. Uh, or oh, do you not know, the apostle says, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers. Is it possible to spend more than a few hours on Twitter without becoming a reviler? Uh, I wonder. Anyway, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Homosexual practice is one sin among many. We preach repentance from all sin. But a blanket ban on conversion therapy could be used to coerce churches to accept the idea that becoming a Christian does not involve repentance with regard to certain sexual sin, contradicting 1 Corinthians 6. A ban would threaten religious liberties and deny individuals the freedom to voluntarily seek biblical advice. There must be room for the preaching of God's word and for believers to receive prayer and pastoral support, whatever temptations they're facing. It's not the job of the government to rewrite Christian doctrine. If someone asks you to pray with them because they're struggling with temptation, you shouldn't have to worry about whether they might be going to mention same-sex temptation. You shouldn't have to worry about whether that would make your prayers for them illegal. A, a broad law on conversion therapy could make it unlawful for you to help someone addicted to gay pornography but not if it's heterosexual pornography. Well, some of you have seen uh, Beckett Cook's testimony on the Gospel Coalition website. Um, it, we recommend his book, A Change of Affection. It's a wonderful story of God's kindness and love. A decade ago, Beckett had achieved success in Hollywood as a set designer. He worked with stars and supermodels, and he and his gay partner were apparently living the dream. But he says he felt empty. Then in September 2009, he began chatting to a group of Christians. And this is what he says. He said, I asked what their church believed about homosexuality. And they explained that they believed it is a sin. I appreciated their honesty and that they didn't beat around the bush. So those people invited him to church. And he had what he describes as a Damascus Road kind of encounter with Christ. 
And his book provides context. It turns out that for 20 years, a faithful female relative had been praying for him and showing him love. And Cook says this, let me read this paragraph from his book. He says, I listened to all Tim Keller's sermons, as well as John Stott and Dick Lucas. It was a process of discipling, people discipling me at my church and God discipling me through these other voices. During that time, right after I got saved, I had a three month period of no work, which was unusual. So I had all this time to spend with God, to pray and read the Bible. I couldn't stop reading the Bible. Every time I'd listen to a sermon or read the Bible, I'd end up in tears saying, this is true. I can't believe I know God and know the meaning of life finally. So Beckett Cook insists that he was converted. And he says his story has nothing to do with so-called conversion therapy. He says this, he says, if people ask me how I identify, I say, I don't identify by my sexuality. I'm a follower of Christ who has a lot of struggles, including same-sex attraction. Well, when a Christian politician in Northern Ireland, Nelson McCausland, shared a link to the Gospel Coalition article about Beckett's testimony, shared it on his Facebook page, there were immediate calls for him to be sacked from his position on the Board of Education. Nelson was accused of promoting conversion therapy. Of course, he was doing nothing of the sort. Um, there's a great interview with Nelson McCausland on our website where he explains he believes in the gospel, in conversion. And so we see here the danger of conflating conversion, a, a biblical concept, with conversion therapy, a term which alludes to abuse. The hostility to a testimony of Christian conversion shows that the real target for these activists is the gospel itself. If they get their way, we'll be forbidden from sharing testimonies like Beckett's, like Rachel Gilson, Jackie Hill Perry or Rosaria Butterfield. Sharon, back to you. Yeah, so what is the goal of this campaign, we have to ask ourselves. And we need to recognise that those campaigning for a ban on conversion therapy are increasingly upfront that it's actually the teaching and application of biblical sexual ethics that they want to stop. Let's just go back to that Westminster Hall debate for a moment. Angela Eagle MP, who of course had been a government minister under Gordon Brown, specifically highlighted prayer as a form of conversion therapy and being told by faith leaders or your family that you are sinful. And she said, being told to pray hard to change and to question your innermost thoughts and feelings should not be legal. None of that should be legal, she said. That's a direct quotation. Or Steve, Shadow Foreign Minister Stephen Doughty alleged that pastoral care could be used as a cover for some very dangerous practices. Doughty, who describes himself as a gay Christian, said the ban should apply even when a person voluntarily seeks out spiritual support over unwanted same-sex attraction. Or Alicia Kearns, MP for Rutland and Melton said that any attempt to stop someone from expressing their chosen gender identity or sexual orientation is conversion therapy, which she said, quote, can range from therapy and prayer sessions to aversive treatments such as 
electroshocks or even corrective rape. Kern said it should be a legal requirement for people to report known or suspected cases of conversion therapy. So these politicians are clear that they want to legislate against praying with people and studying the Bible with people, both of which are core activities of our churches. We've already mentioned Jane Azan. Now Jane is a General Synod member and an ex-evangelical, though she claims to be evangelical. And she organized an open letter to the Prime Minister, which said, we urge you to ensure that the UK will not tolerate those who practice conversion therapy in any form, whether consensual or not, and that those who practice it will be prosecuted. This will have the impact of causing religious leaders to think twice, as they will not want to risk having a criminal record, which would prevent them following their vocation. And here's another quote from Jane Azan. People offering conversion therapy are rarely licensed mental health professionals. Many are in fact religious officials such as church leaders or prayer ministry members. So it's not just church leaders or pastors who could be in trouble. She wants the ban to be extended to catch a person who agrees to pray with a friend at church. Steve Chalk has rejected central biblical truths, but he also of course professes to be evangelical and Chalk wants the conversion therapy ban to cover pastoral care of those with same-sex attraction. And he says that informal prayers and sermons that don't positively affirm LGBT identities are damaging and it requires government intervention. So he is holding conferences telling people that this is a safeguarding issue. And he claims that failing to embrace pro-LGBT theology will lead to a crop of high profile prosecutions against churches. Or some of you may have read the autobiography of Vicki Beeching. Now it does seem from her account that as a young person, sadly, she was dealt with by evangelical Christians in an unwise and unbiblical way. And hurt and anger has morphed now into the conviction that to teach the fact that the Bible condemns same sex practices is always abusive. Now, of course, it's right to be compassionate towards mental health issues, but Vicki Beeching insists that any teaching that same-sex relationships are sinful is always ruinous to mental health. So Jane Azan, Steve Chalk, Vicki Beeching and others want the law to be used to settle a theological dispute. We recognize that the Bible teaches that homosexual practice is wrong. They say it does not teach that they say our interpretation of it should be criminalized. But that would mean sermons, small groups, individual conversations, prayer times, or even parents teaching their own children could be criminalized too. Now, because they're high profile and they claim the label evangelical, that means that many people in our culture and in the media now genuinely think that it's not our evangelical faith that requires us to believe homosexuality is wrong, it's just bigotry. And we need to ask again, would there be implications in all of this for children and young people? Well, activists want this ban to, a conversion therapy ban to include gender identity. And that means that a parent who complained that their children had been damaged by gender ideology at school 
could be accused of suppressing that child's true gender identity or teaching their child biblical truth could be labeled conversion therapy. And also the rapidly growing detransitional movement of ex-trans people could find itself silenced and unable to share their own stories for fear of being accused of conversion therapy. So what can we do? Well, this is an opportunity we believe to testify before a watching world to the grace of God and the real meaning of the gospel. It's so sad that activists have misused and twisted the meaning of the word conversion. We must take the opportunity to explain what Christian conversion really is and explain the free offer of the gospel that is extended to all people. It is important to understand our current environment. Sometimes to approach some MPs may be very counterproductive. One of the things the Christian Institute specializes in is in carefully briefing supporters to get involved in controversial issues. So we may have 20 reasons why we think MPs should vote in a particular way on an issue, but it's quite possible that only a small handful of those reasons would actually communicate well to a non-Christian politician. If we want to influence them for good, we have to be able to help them choose. We have to be able to choose the right words for the occasion, as Ephesians 4.29 says. And so helping supporters choose the right words is an important part of what we do. And we'll be doing more of that on this issue. We'd suggest that if you join our mailing list today, you'll benefit from that. And we can then let you know as and when key opportunities arise to speak out. You can sign up on christian.org.uk, sign up, and that link is on the chat as well. But the important thing also is please raise this issue with your church and help them to know how to speak about it in a way that is helpful and especially encourage them to pray about it. Let them know about our free briefing on the proposed ban. There's a link to that on the chat as well. And if you would prefer hard copies of that briefing, we can supply them for free if you contact the Christian Institute. There are lots of very influential people ranged against us on this issue, but we need to be praying and working so that if legislation does proceed, we can ensure that it only outlaws dubious pseudo-medical practices and does not affect the ordinary work of churches. So I'll hand back to Simon now to conclude. Well, just to remind you again for the opportunity to ask questions, just a few more things to say. Uh, it, clearly, this is a serious threat to gospel liberty uh, and it's, it's a toxic issue. Some people will be tempted to stay quiet. It may be easier we think to lie low, to keep our faith private, to bunker down in our Christian communities, easier than risking accusations of hateful intolerance that might result from openly proclaiming the gospel of repentance. But God calls us to love and serve others. And that includes uh, doing good, includes serving our neighbours and includes sharing the good news of salvation with everyone. And, you know, this is not an issue which is going to stay outside the doors of our churches. We cannot hide from it. So we have to speak up. Now, we might feel weak. I certainly do every day. But we have the truth of God's word and we have the power of his spirit. And in union with Christ and his people, we are to proclaim the gospel of forgiveness from sin, which alone can rescue us from God's righteous judgment. So we should regard this cultural moment as an opportunity. On the one hand, 
our therapeutic culture tries to erase guilt and shame, but perversely, our culture is also fiercely unforgiving. Christianity offers forgiveness, a new start, and the power to live a new life. In a world where unlimited autonomy has been exalted and freedom has been sought from the restrictions of binding commitments, there is an ocean of insecurity and pain. Many long for fidelity and security. And we have a faithful God who keeps his promises. He's created us in his image and his moral law works for human flourishing, not against it. And the powerful bonds of genuine Christian community offer acceptance, commitment, and grace. All around us, there are countless people who are, in the words of Ephesians 2, without hope and without God in the world. But we have a certain hope to hold out and the free offer of the gospel to share. And it's our privilege and it's our joy to represent our king as we speak and stand for him, whatever the cost. I've been doing this work for nearly 25 years. And this conversion therapy band business is probably the most direct threat to religious freedom that I've seen. But I want to conclude by encouraging you because I've seen God do amazing things in those 25 years. From 2001 to 2006, the government tried to outlaw religious hatred. Now, like this issue, it made it sound like you were on the side of hate if you disagreed. But the law they wanted could have been used against preachers claiming that Christ was the only way to God and that other religions were false. We actually forged a working relationship in that campaign with the National Secular Society and with civil libertarians and others. And together we saw Prime Minister Tony Blair suffer one of his very few defeats in the House of Commons over that legislation. And the law which resulted in the end was radically cut back from what was originally proposed. In 2007, 2008, we worked with the former Home Secretary Lord Waddington to secure a free speech clause in the homophobic hatred legislation. We didn't have any secular co-belligerence on that one, but we still won four votes in two bills over two years to defeat the government against all the odds. In 2012, from a standing start, we launched a campaign called Reform Section 5 to amend a 1980s law against insults that was increasingly being used against street preachers and many others. Stephen Fry and Rowan Atkinson joined us for that campaign. And it was the first time that we made it onto uh, BBC's Have I Got News For You? In the end, we handed the government a thumping defeat in the Lords, and we ended up doing training for the police in how to implement the change in the new law to respect the free speech of street preachers. 2014, we ran a similar campaign and stopped the government making it illegal to be annoying in a public place. You can imagine why people like me will be worried about a law like that. Well, I could go on, but in all these things, we saw remarkable providences of God uh, and believers stood up and spoke out in an informed way, yes, in a persistent way, and God granted us success. Let's pray that he may do the same with this. Let's start, Phil, with questions to Simon and Sharon. Thank you, John. And um, one of the things that's, that's coming through on the questions, uh, Sharon and Simon, is that there'll obviously be a concerted effort from the pro-conversion therapy lobby uh, to make sure they speak as one voice. How can we make sure we speak as one voice uh, as Christian groups uh, opposed to, uh, to conversion therapy? 
Well, that's a great question. Uh, and uh, I mean, one obvious part of the answer you would expect me to say is that, um, I mean, do, you know, do join the mailing list, do join with us. We will be mobilizing Christians on this issue in you know, very careful and deliberate and focused ways. Um, you can rest assured that uh, we are, of course, uh, we have very good relations with the other Christian organizations working on this and we uh, are speaking to one another. Uh, and um, I think the key is gonna be um, the focus of, of our concerns. Um, it's, it, 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 is, um, it is very important to focus on the everyday work of the church. Um, that is where our concern should lie. That is where the greatest dangers lie. And that is where the government should have the greatest um, reluctance and the greatest concerns from, from reasons of principle, but also because of the potential for uh, legal challenge if they get it wrong. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, the Christian belief that homosexual practice is sinful uh, and that marriage is only between a man and a woman, that Christian belief is protected by equality and discrimination law and by human rights law. In fact, we've run more than one court case where that principle has been underscored by the judges. So our beliefs on this issue are protected by human rights uh, and discrimination law. And uh, the government can't just trample over those beliefs. Um, so that's where we, we need to focus. But we have to be very aware of um, where concerns at the other side uh, may have a genuine. We have to be very aware that uh, even where we may suspect that uh, claims are not verified, that uh, many people believe they are. So we have to show um, a degree of, uh, perhaps you call it emotional intelligence, I don't know, but a degree of awareness of the context into which we're speaking. And so I think the unity that we need has to be around that kind of sensible, careful, measured messaging. Simon, that's really helpful. And this question kind of dovetails with that really nicely. How can we be heard well? You rightly mentioned, and Sharon mentioned in her presentation, that there are some things that are going on that are absolutely horrific and we would never want to support. But how can we, how can we speak well against conversion therapy as a whole when it might be seen that we're standing for those things that we would absolutely be against? Yeah, well, it, it's very important to, to include the qualifiers. Um, you know, as we've sought to do uh, in our presentation, as we sought to do in the briefing, which we've given you a link to, uh, as we seek to do in our communications with supporters, you, you have to recognize, as I say, where the concerns are real and, and mention those things. And so um, we are not campaigning against a ban on conversion therapy. We're campaigning against that ban damaging the ordinary work of churches. So that's a very important distinction to make. Um, and as a matter of real world examples, I mean, time doesn't allow, uh, but, uh, uh, but I, I would have wanted to tell you about what is happening in some other countries around the world. In the state of Victoria, in Australia, they have passed the kind of conversion therapy ban that activists here want, and it specifically lists prayer as one of the things that's included in the ban. Um, whereas in Germany, uh, their ban focuses on medical and pseudo-medical practices. Now, clearly and very simply, we prefer the German model to the Australian model. Um, and so that too is, you know, that, that, that too is an important uh, part of the messaging. 
to be able to say, you know, there may well be a ban and, and, uh, and, and there may well need to be one. Um, and it's possible to do it in a way which does not trample on religious freedoms and, and does not affect the ordinary work of churches. Um, but, you know, I, I think just saying we want our religious freedoms, and I have spent 25 years defending religious freedoms, but just saying we want our religious freedoms is not enough. We have to include the qualifiers to explain what we're not defending, and we do not want to get into trying to defend the indefensible. Thank you, uh, Simon. Uh, here's an interesting question. How much do you get the impression that this is filtering down to the normal non-Christian man or woman uh, on the street? Is this something that's just happening at kind of a uh, level of, of kind of elites in, in politics and, uh, and in our circles? Or is this actually filtering down to, 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 the, to what you, like the everyday man or woman? That's a good question. Sharon, I don't know if you have a view on that. I mean, my feeling is that, um, I mean, the campaign for a ban, which reaches into the ordinary work of the church, has many friends in the media. Um, ITV and BBC news stories on this are normally very, very one-sided um, to an extent that I, I very much doubt that they're fulfilling their Ofcom obligations to you know, be impartial on issues of public controversy. Um, but I, I think that it is filtering down. I, I think that probably most people have never heard of conversion therapy, but if, if they have heard of it, they think it's an appallingly abusive practice and could not begin to understand why anybody would ever want to defend it. And so that's, and, and, and that's partly our fault as, as Christians. Um, you know, if the world doesn't understand what we really believe about these things, it is partly our fault for not taking more opportunities to explain what we do believe. And I think we spent far too long allowing people who oppose us to define us. And, and I think it's time that we took the opportunity to speak out publicly, sensibly, calmly, rationally, in a well-informed way um, in, in the public space, um, in, the way, you know, in the way that, that John does, uh, for example. I think there are many uh, others who, who could have those opportunities to do that, if only they would take them. The only thing I'd add to that is that obviously this plays into a much wider cultural shift and the reason why we included a book review by Tim Chalice on a really secular book called Cynical Theories in, in, the, in the resource list is that that book, Cynical Theories, just in a, in a very masterful way outlines the whole cultural shift driven by something called critical theory, which means that now the assumption of ordinary people is that Christianity is a toxic religion and any questioning of people's identity, what they say about themselves, however bizarre, is abusive. So that's a cultural shift that it's quite important to be aware of. Um, and, and in a sense, uh, we, we can't get into that whole subject now, but we, we simply gave a little pointer towards it by providing that link on the resource list. Uh, Sharon, Simon, thank you so much for engaging with those. That's all that the questions sort of aimed at, at, at you both. Good. Well, thank you so much indeed to Sharon and Simon. We're really, really grateful to you um, uh, for sharing with us, for helping us. Please do be assured of our uh, kind of ongoing prayers for your work and ministry. Um, if there are ways in which we can help you and support you, please do be in touch with us because as churches, we want to be mobilised in the right way to be able to speak about this issue at a, a crucial moment. Um, let me pray as we finish. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you and praise you for the confidence that we have that you are the sovereign God who's in control of all things. Um, thank you for the gospel that you've given us and thank you for the glorious 
good news of the gospel, which is that we can be um, uh, converted, we can be turned uh, from sin to um, uh, forgiveness, and that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you help us to put to death temptation and live for you. Father, all of us recognise that we struggle with temptations in our lives. We want to ask for your help to struggle against those temptations by your power. We pray particularly for those in our churches, those that we know who are struggling with same-sex temptation, that you would mercifully help them to continue to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to ask and pray that you would um, uh, restrain um, the plans of those who would want to make ordinary Christian men ministry, um, proclamation of gospel truth, uh, uh, unlawful and criminal. Uh, please, Lord, would you open the eyes of the government to recognise that risk? We pray that um, you would uh, restrain um, uh, uh, that uh, uh, kind of desire. Um, we want to ask and pray, Lord, that practices that are wrong, that do abuse people, that we would reject them um, and, and that churches would reject them. Um, but we want to pray that we would know how best to defend um, the, the right freedoms that we have to minister Christ to others. Please um, give understanding to our congregations. Please be particularly with Sharon and Simon and the Christian Institute as they engage on this issue. Um, on our behalf, give them immense wisdom, but also boldness and clarity. We pray for unity in working together between all of the different organisations that are going to be speaking for the denominations that might speak into this issue. Um, so, Father, please, um, would you be at work? We would ask and pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thanks for listening to the FIC podcast. For more resources for church leaders, subscribe to this podcast on your favourite podcast app and visit our website at fiec.org.uk.